Bibles to the book of Judges, chapter 11, is where we find the beginning of Ehud's, or excuse me, of Jephthah's story. Uh, remember what we're talking about over and over again is this cycle happening in the book of Judges where God's people get delivered by someone God has sent to deliver them, and they get delivered by this judge, they get delivered by this, this, this leader, and then all of a sudden they go right back to doing what they were doing before. They go right back to idolatry, they go right back to sinning, they go right back to what they had been doing, and then they cycle repeats. They have to call out to God again. God sends another deliverer. It's no different in our account tonight in the book of Jephthah in chapter 10. You're going to see that this, this cycle happens yet again. And in chapter 11, we're ready for another deliverer to come to Israel by the name of Jephthah. So to get started tonight, uh, we're going to just take a turn, each of us, describing the uh, story of Jephthah uh, by different uh, passages breakdown. So uh, guys, what do, we, what do we get from the story of Jephthah as we start to break it down? So let's start in just Judges, uh, Judges chapter 11. I'm going to read the first two verses here to kind of get us going. Uh, when, you, when, you start, when you look at the story of Jephthah, you can break it down in a few different sections. And I'll be, I'll, kind of take in, I'll be taking the first two. The first one will be sections 1 through 11. Let's read verses 1 through 2. Now Jephthah was a Gileadite. Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a valiant warrior, but he was the son of a harlot. And Gilead was the father of Jephthah. Gilead's uh, wife bore him sons, and when his, his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, you shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. So if we stop there, we've already got a pretty interesting situation here in the kind of lineage of who this man is, right? And so you have this kind of interesting, interesting situation in verse 1 where you have Jephthah. We're introduced to this man, right? His name is Jephthah. And all that we learn is that first off, he's a Gileadite. He's from the city of Gilead. And then the next thing you know, and he, he was born from Gilead. You look at the second verse in verse, uh, chapter, chapter 11, verse 1. And Gilead was the father of Jephthah. And so right there, you kind of have this moment where, okay, what does this mean? Because every other, every other time where Gilead is mentioned in the Bible, there's not a man named Gilead. It's the city of Gilead. So is, what, what do we have here? Is Jephthah the son of a man named Gilead also living in a city named Gilead, right? So that's option one. He's the son of a man named Gilead, who this man named Gilead, living in that city, um, has a son with a harlot in this situation, right? His name is Jephthah, and he grows up. Or is this just a product of the city, right? Just like we could say we're sons and daughters of this country, sons and daughters of this state, sons and daughters of this community. Is this a, a guy named Jephthah that was born and raised in Gilead? That's the second option. He's a son of Gilead. And his, he, now he is the son of a harlot. We have that as a caveat here into, in his narrative. And so now we have to kind of decide, okay, what makes more sense? What, based on what evidence, what do we have a situation here? We dig, a little, we dig a little bit more into it. Maybe we have a little more information. In the second verse, it says, Well, when Gilead's wives, Gilead's wives bore him sons, and when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have inheritance in our father's house. Now, if we follow this narrative all, all the way down to verse 7, later on in the situation, we're going to explain why in a second, a, a group of leaders from the city, not the family, not Jephthah's family, but a group of leaders from the city of Gilead come and start to, start to kind of petition him, We need your help. 
it's interesting because to this, the city leaders, he says, didn't you kick me out? Look at verse 7. Did you not hate me and drive me from my father's house? So we have maybe a better idea that Jephthah is more than likely just a man that was from Gilead. His wife, is, his, his, his mother is a harlot from that city, and he grew up there to a degree. Now we have also information that this, the, the people around his age at some point kicked him out of Gilead. And we have verses 1 through 11, he leaves Gilead, lives in another city, kind of gets a reputation as a warrior. He has the same situation as Abimelech where he kind of is also known as running with a rough crowd, right? He has a kind of a group of, of people around him, maybe go on raiding parties, stuff like that. He's known as a warrior. And therefore, when Gilead, the city, is in trouble later on, verses 8 through 11, they recognize, okay, well, we know one guy, that we know him, we know where he is, and he's known for being a warrior. The Ammonites, the Ammonites have come and started petition for their land to be given back to them. And they've kind of come and, and waged war against the Israelites here in this area. And so Israel, the leaders of, leaders of Gilead here, they go, okay, well, let's go get us a leader. So verses 1 through 11, we have this first kind of relationship with uh, Jephthah and Gilead. Is he a son of a, a father named Gilead? Is he a son of the city? Maybe more than likely the, the latter half. But they come and ask him, okay, we know that we kicked you out, but do, would you mind coming back to be our leader? And after some negotiations, he says, yes, if I come back, and if God gives me the Ammonites in my hand, then you will make me my leader. And they agree to that. And so the verses, 11 th- verses 12 through 28, kind of the next chapter in, his, in Jephthah's life, he, co- he comes and takes that role. He is now the de facto military leader of the Israelites in this, ter- in this part of Israel, right? And his main, I- his main enemy is the Ammonites. And it's, I think one of the first admirable parts we look at is the, the very first thing he does is he doesn't just go wage a war, right? He doesn't grab the banner and charge into battle. He sends, some, he sends some letters, he sends them in, and he says, okay, is there any way that we could um, avoid this? Let's start some negotiations, right? So the first chapter is his relationship with Gilead. Now we're looking at the negotiations with Ammonites. And so he says, can we, is there any way we could avoid this conflict, conflict, right? And they pretty much say, no, we want war. And so then verses 13 through 25, he gives an exaggerated, let's really think about it. And he gives really four main points on why this doesn't make sense that we lose thousands of people. We wage a whole war over this, over this situation. The first, the first kind of point that he makes for this, that this doesn't make sense is, he goes, we didn't take this land for, from you. He says, if you go back in history and you look, when we came and, and took this land, it was from the Amorites. You weren't even living in and laying claim to this land when we, when we came and conquered it. So that's the first point. The second one is more of a theological. He says, this is land that our God has told us that we can possess. And he says that to them because the Ammonites also are laying claim to other territories within their boundaries because they claim that their God, Chemosh, has given, ter- given that land to them. He says, listen, we, already, we, we recognize that you understand that a recognized God can give you territory, where our recognized God has given us this territory. The third one is political, and he says, well, he says, you don't have any right to lay claim to this territory. The Moabites, who are your neighbors and our neighbors, they haven't challenged, they haven't challenged us for land that we took from them. And are you better than them? And then fourth, and possibly the biggest one, he says, also, he says, guys, we've been living here for 300 years. Is this really a problem now? says, you haven't wanted this for 300 years. Are you sure you, all of a sudden, 
this belongs to you right now. And you can see the result in verse 28. For the king of the sons of Ammon disregarded the message which Jephthah sent him. And so the war begins. And that's where the story uh, takes a unique turn because it no longer is focused on Jephthah and Ammon. It's focused on Jephthah and this vow he's going to make to God. And that's really one of the key elements of Jephthah's story that we all remember. And so between verses 29 and 33, you have Jephthah now negotiating with God. He negotiated with the leaders of Gilead to become their leader. He was trying to negotiate with Ammon to reconcile their differences and not go to war. And now he's negotiating with God. Look particularly at verse um, 30, and you'll see the vow he makes, 30 and 31. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. At first glance, it's a commendable act. Lord, if you give us victory here, as you've done for so many of your leaders in the past, as you did for Moses, as you did for Joshua, as you did for Gideon, so on, then the first thing I'm going to do when I get home is offer a sacrifice to you. I'm certain, or I believe, I should say, that he expects the first thing to greet him to be one of his many livestock, to be some animal from his flocks. And he's, go- he's dedicating the first to be given to the Lord, just like the Mosaic Law commands for the firstborn of your flocks to be. He's trying to do something good here, but he's not thinking it through all the way. And as the story unfolds, he goes off to war, and guess what? God does his part. God gives him the victory. God uh, defeats Ammon for them. Jephthah comes home, and that's where the story gets complicated. Because as you look at between verses 34 through 40, you find out that when he comes home, the first thing to exit to his house is his daughter. But not just any daughter, his only daughter. His only child, in fact. And she comes out to greet him, celebrating his victory. She's glad dad's home. She's proud of her father for having uh, led this charge against Ammon and coming back victorious. And his immediate response is to tear his clothes fall on his knees and cry out that she has brought reproach on him in some fact. She is making him eat his words. And now he's going to have to sacrifice her. He explains to her what he's done and in a beautiful act that we'll talk about more later she says do what you said you got to do. But she requests time to go off and mourn her virginity, the text says, to mourn the fact that she will be childless, to mourn the fact that she'll never have a husband. And she's uh, provided two months to go do that. And uh, the text implies that when she returned, Jephthah fulfilled his vow. That's where the story leaves off at the end of chapter 11. If you look at chapter 12, you're going to see that uh, the final chapter in Jephthah's story is just as interesting as uh, the ones before. This, 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 this judge had a very interesting life, to say the least, and the end of his life ends with civil war. Um, the children of Israel fighting against themselves. Um, because what happens is um, all these external forces, like Ammonites and others, have been going after him his entire life. 
Well, now it's time for Ephraim to go against Gileadites. And what's going to happen is they are upset, not that Jephthah defeated the Ammonites, but the Ephraimites are upset that Jephthah did it without getting them and calling them to come help. They feel left out. In verse 1 you can see, Why did you cross over to fight against the people of Ammon and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house down on you with fire. Right? We'll burn you down for this. And then verse 2 he says, Listen, I have this great struggle, struggle with the people of Ammon. I tried to call out to you and you didn't help. So you have this conflict. Right? Between two different sections of the Israelites, the Ephraimites and the Gileadites. Okay? And so what you're going to see is, you're going to see this civil war take place in verses 1 through 7. And what Jephthah does, he yet again tries to negotiate, tries to help them understand that this is, this is an awful idea, this isn't going to go well, this isn't a great thing for our nation, but yet the Ephraimites would have nothing of it. And so they go to war against Jephthah and the Ammonites. And they go to war and we see that in verse 6, what happens to the Ephraimites? 42,000 Ephraimites die in battle against Jephthah and his men. And so you're going to see at the very end, Jephthah was a judge of the Gileadites, the, the judge of Israel, for six years, and his beginning that Jay talked about, his beginning is just as ambiguous as his end in some ways because this nation that would not accept him at the beginning of his life because of where he came from, where his background was, at the end of his life, in some ways, they didn't respect him and honor him and accept him at the end of his life because we see that he's not even buried within his own community. This is an interesting fact that from the very beginning to the very ending of his life, the Gileadites just simply used Jephthah. They used Jephthah. They didn't respect him, accept him, or honor him, uh, no matter how many victories he won for them. Because at the end of his life, there he is, buried <clears throat> outside the cities of, of Gilead, outside the community, so to speak. So, that's the... That's, the narrative of the life of Jephthah kind of summarized for us as we get started with some questions tonight so where we understand the, the, the life of Jephthah before we get into some of these questions. The first question that I want to ask as we finish talking about uh, the life of Jephthah, I just want to ask, how, how would you describe Jephthah's uh, reign as judge, uh, as deliverer of Israel? Would you, would you say he was a good judge? Would you say he was a bad judge? Say somewhere in between. How would you describe uh, Jephthah's leadership that we just talked about? I definitely think it's somewhere in between, but as a leader, the thing that stands out to me about Jephthah is his... Here's a guy who, right off the bat, is called a mighty warrior. That was something Gideon was told he was, but Gideon was told that when he was hiding. Jephthah has earned the reputation as a mighty warrior. Gideon hadn't earned it yet. <clears throat> but despite that reputation, his first tactic every time is to negotiate. He pursues diplomacy before he pursues military action. And there's something commendable about that. There's something that, that I look at Jephthah and go, okay, 
you don't want to shed innocent blood if you don't have to. You, 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 you want to try to work these things out, whether it's dealing with the Ammonites or, or dealing with your own people in Ephraim. He, he's always trying to negotiate. And I think that is, is a, a, there's, a, there's a, a wisdom to that and something to appreciate about Jephthah that he, he's willing to take that, that first step instead of just being the warrior guy. And so I think that's commendable. But as the story unfolds, his negotiation abilities kind of decrease. He's really successful at negotiating with the men of Gilead. His negotiation with Ammon takes a good bit of time, but goes nowhere. And then he tries to negotiate with God, gets no response from God. And then he tries to negotiate with Ephraim, and that's unsuccessful. So even though it, he, it's, it's, it speaks to wisdom that he's trying to be a, a, a diplomat in these situations, he, he at times uh, is somewhat rash, as we'll find out with his vow, that maybe he's not thinking things through all the way. So there, there's some good and bad there both, but, but I admire that he, he goes the, the diplomatic route initially instead of just being the mighty warrior. Yeah, when I look at uh, his leadership as a judge and deliverer of Israel, like you're saying, I feel like there are so many different lenses that you could look at uh, his story through. You could look at this one section we talked about and be like, this is, this is great. This is a great, great leader, great leadership. This is something that we need to apply to our lives. But then you go to the next section, it's like, this is awful. This is, this is not good. This is not a good leadership. Uh, this is rash. This is flippant in some ways. You have this, this admirable phoenix, you know, rising from the ashes, and this humble beginning. Uh, he rises from the ashes to become the judge of, of Gilead that everyone followed him, from being hated from zero to hero, some, some, so to speak, right? Mm-hmm. But then, you know, we talk about what happened with his daughter and uh, civil war breaking out. I mean, you, like you said, there's a lot of lenses to look at, but... If I were to describe his leadership, I, I would describe it in a word. The word is handicapped. I feel like he was handicapped as a leader. And we see this sometimes uh, in our world. Leaders that are handicapped by certain circumstances or certain things in their lives. And I feel like Jephthah was extremely handicapped. His entire leadership as judge because of his past. This is something me and Jay were talking about a little bit. Before we got started tonight, I hope I don't get onto what you were going to talk about. But I feel like Jephthah was so handicapped with his beginnings, something he could not control in any way, shape, or form. His birth, who he was born by, right? We know of the Israelite history, how important it was, who you came from, what stock you came from, what your genealogy was, or whatever it might be. Here we have this man who's born of a harlot who isn't accepted by his own community. And so I think this, this beginning determined the rest of his decisions and the rest of his life. <clears throat> Let me explain what I mean by this. I feel like his beginnings determined all of his decisions that came after in that he was trying to prove himself to be somebody throughout the rest of his life. In all of his uh, diplomacy, in all of his... Uh, Leadership is Israel. There were good things and bad things, but I feel like he was really trying to, to like, I, like we were talking about, rise up from these terrible background and terrible beginning. And it wound up ruining his decision-making sometimes. 
it wound up plaguing him. He, he almost had little man syndrome where he's, he's going to try to prove himself no matter what. And I don't care what anybody says about me or my past or if they accept me or don't accept me. I'm going to be somebody. Right? One of these days, you just wait and see. There's a country song. I'm going to be somebody. Okay? I feel like that's Jephthah as we look at this uh, story tonight. He had skeletons uh, in the past. He had demons in the past to, to try to, not, nothing of his own. But his entire life, I, I see it as, as him trying to prove himself as this worthy, someone that is worthy. Um, and so I see him as this handicapped judge, as a leader. No matter how hard he tried, he was always handicapped in some way. That's all. All right. No, I'm just kidding. I'm, <laughs> nice Go ahead. I love Jephthah. I, I think if you're going to classify his, uh, his leadership, it's admirable. I don't see anything wrong with Jephthah from beginning to end. Yes, he forgets to add a clause in a vow, but... Okay, so he's this illegitimate child from a city that hates him, that kicks him out, right? He loses inheritance, loses everything. We have that whole tragic past, yet when they come crawling back to him, right? He's born on the wrong side of the tracks. Everybody hates the guy. But when they need, in their darkest hour, chapter 10, when the Ammonites have literally been oppressing them from years at this point, when they need him, he doesn't look down at him and go, oh, now you need me. How many of us in this room... When spurned by someone and they come back and ask, hey, can you do me a favor, would we be tempted to go, uh, absolutely not. And how many of us, if that favor was, hey, do you mind risking your life in a battle for me? Uh, absolutely not, times two, right? Because the Ammonites had already beaten the Israelites. Chapter 10 is the oppression of the Philistines, the Ammonites. So what they're asking of him is not even a guarantee. And he recognizes it because every time he negotiates with the Ammonites, or with the Gileadites, he goes, well, if the Lord gives them to my hand. He's even referencing the fact that this isn't a, a, a for sure win. I'll do this, and if it works, if I don't die in this battle, yes, I will lead the charge for a hometown that hates me. And if I do this, will you then just honor me? And man, I, I can, I, I, that's admirable to, my, to me. And then on top of that, he finds success. You have this... And, and, and then in every point, right, every point that he mentions battle in all the passages, he goes, if the Lord will see it through. If you look back at verse, um, verse 9, uh, if, you take the, if you take me back to fight against the sons of Ammon, and the Lord gives them to me, he goes, and it's not me who's going to win this battle. It's not my prowess. It's not going to be my valiant warriorness. It's if the Lord gives them to me. And then it, and when he makes the vow... Uh, Verse 30, if you will indeed give me the sons of Ammon. And so he starts the vow, I will only have success, Lord, if you do this for me. And then in chapter 12 and verse 2, I and my people are a great strife for the sons of Ammon when I called you. You did not deliver them from their hand. When I saw that you would not deliver me, I took my life in my hands and crossed over against the, the sons of Ammon. And the Lord gave them into my hand. At any point in the story, he could have given, he, well, he could have grabbed some of that. I think he has a little, maybe he wants to be somebody. But at every point, he could have proven to, to everybody else, hey, look at me. I am the Savior of Gilead. He goes, I didn't win that battle. And Ephraim, you didn't win that battle. The Lord gave them into my hands. You just didn't show up to the party on time. And so I love Jephthah because he could have made a lot of mistakes. This is the, I mean, you have Abimelech last week. They had a lot of things. I just, the, the balance between these two, Jephthah could have made even more mistakes. And then with the one mistake he makes, right? He makes this vow, 
that ends up having a clause problem, and he honors it. I mean, how many of us in this room would have broken this vow in a heartbeat? Right? We've all had those prayers. I promise you prayers. Lord, if you'll just do this for me, I promise I'll do this for you. And we've broken those. And imagine the vow that Jephthah finds himself in. And he still honors it. So I, I love Jephthah. Maybe someone come tell me where I'm wrong here, but I, I think he's my number three now. <laughs> he's moving up in my, in my rankings. So when we look at the, we've talked about uh, the narrative of Jephthah, there's this obvious key element that many of us remember, many of us think about. When we think about Jephthah, this is the thing we think about, and it's the vow. We've talked about it, we've, we've hinted about it throughout this study so far. Let's go to the vow and, and think about it a little bit more, or the results of the vow, in verses 34 um, through 40. Uh, what, do you, what do you see standing out most to you when you look at this passage in, in the results of this vow? There's, there's different components that, have, that, that, that play out. I'll go ahead and get started with mine. I, I think the very beginning of the result, verse 34 to me, just sets the tone of how tragic of a result this is about to be. You can imagine this great victory. Remember, as Jay pointed out, the whole way through, he's asking God and he's telling others, if God is with me, we're going to defeat the Ammonites. Verse 34, God was with him and they defeated the Ammonites. It's a time of celebration. And we see that his daughter is celebrating along with the Gileadites and her father Jephthah. Verse 34, when Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah, there was his daughter. Coming out to meet him with timbrels and dancing, and she was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter came to pass when he saw her, he tore his clothes. So to me, I, I'm, I'm, I'm just seeing how tragic of a result this must have been for Jephthah. To, to have lived his entire life trying to become worthy of deliverer and judge and worthy of, of being a, a, a man of Gilead. And all of these different things that we see him, him rising up into this role and he's finally won this victory over the Ammonites and he knows in his head he's got to sacrifice his only child his daughter and the way it describes his daughter as as this childlike innocence coming up to him playing the timbrels and dancing and celebrating in her mind she's getting ready for a big grand celebration that they have finally slayed the Ammonites. But little did she know the vow her father had made and her fate because of it. I don't have a, I don't have a child, but there's something to be said about when you come home and a kid comes running up to you. This is some of the saddest passages in all of the book of Judges. You look at verse 34 and you've got this father returning home from battle. He is now going to be the leader of his hometown. His daughter comes running out to him. Look at verse 35. My section here is kind of the pain that Jephthah must have felt. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. Let's just kind of put ourselves in 
in the moment for a second. He comes, you know, he rounds a corner. He sees his home, right? He has the vow in the back of his head, obviously not thinking about his daughter in this situation. And you can imagine, you, I, you, can't, you can't imagine the sinking of the heart when the door opens and she walks out first. You know, what I think about, and this is an odd illustration, but what I think about in, in the movie The Patriot, um, terrible movie, no one watched that movie, um, unless it's on TV, right? Uh, Mel Gibson's character loses a child, and it's a great portrayal of loss in this moment because he's so out of it that his lips are trembling, his eyes are watering, he's inconsolable, he looks manic, and of all people who can look manic, Mel Gibson does a great job looking like he's <laughs> lost his mind. And he's lost his mind because of that loss. And so you get to verse 35, and he weeps, he wells, he, he starts this Israelite process of grief by tearing his clothes. And you can imagine this man dropping to his knees, ripping the tunic off of him and crying out, not my daughter, right? This is some of the just rawest pain of the Old Testament there is. And so it's, it's sad. It's sad. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's kind of a gut punch of a vow that he's made. It's a mistake, but there he is. One of the, you speak of it, it's one of the hardest passages to comprehend, followed by one of the most beautiful passages. Because if you look at verse um, 37, the response of this child to hearing her father's vow is this, let this thing be done for me. Wait, I'm sorry, I need to go to verse 36. I chose the wrong verse. Verse 36, my father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. This young girl... Every indication is that she's, she's still in her youth. This young girl is so obedient to the Lord that she's okay with her father fulfilling this vow. She's reminiscent to me. The only other character in Scripture that I can think of that compares to this is Mary, the mother of Jesus who when the, the angel appeared to her in Luke chapter 1 and told her, hey, here's what God wants to do with you, her response, verse 38 of Luke 1, was, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. I think Jephthah's got some great faith in this chapter. Evidenced by what Jay just talked about with, when it came to war, Jephthah was always talking about it, it's the Lord who gives the victory. But I think his daughter has the greatest faith in this chapter because she's accepting of something that was not her choosing. Mm -hmm. By faith, she's obeying something that she didn't choose because it was in service to the Lord. There's something beautiful about this young girl. You look at the end of the, the text there in chapter 11, it became a custom among the Israelites that as a nation, they would mourn death of Jephthah's daughter for years and years to come. Verse 40, the daughters of Israel went four days each year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite. That's, that's a tragic, tragic story, tragic ending, tragic result to a rash vow, but as Kyle was talking about, it's a beautiful tribute to this great woman of faith that we don't even have her name. We do have Jephthah's name though, 
And it, go ahead. You got right, something? Yeah, quick question. Do we have any idea if he ever had any other children? It's not said in this text, but it just hit me. We don't have any yeah. like only comments child. later that said like yeah. the son of Jephthah, right? Because when she dies, she's the only child, but uh, and we have no evidence. So that's just another layer of pain. I just that just thought of was yeah. there's a lineage of this great warrior, you know, the, yeah. one of the only men that had the spirit of the Lord come on him. Well, so, also, it's, while we're going out down this, I think we've talked about how he was a man with no community. Yeah, lineage no, is everything. No love, no no uh, background that was of any note, and the one thing. The, the one person he did have was that only child, that only daughter. Mm -hmm. that's, that's why it's so tragic. We don't have uh, Jephthah's daughter's name. We do have Jephthah's name, and it's a name that we see in Hebrews chapter 11. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11 with, with us tonight. As we think about Hebrews 11, what do we know it for? It is the chapter of faith, right? It is the chapter, uh, the, the Faith Hall of Fame, or the Hall of Fame of Faith. And, and we have these titles for Hebrews chapter 11 because the writer of Hebrews writes down all of these heroes and heroines of the Israelite history. And he compares them to the, to the faith and, and to the blessing that we have under Christ, how we can have a better faith than these, even these heroes. But among those names, in verse 32, you're going to see the name Jephthah. Jephthah is recorded in Hebrews chapter 11. And the question for us tonight is, if Jephthah had made such a tragic vow, such a rash decision, why is he recorded in Hebrews chapter 11? I think my quick response to that would be, well, if David is there, then Jephthah can be there. You know, if David right. sets a bar of making some pretty bad mistakes, you know, killing a man, stealing his wife, having a child with a wife, you know, all that situation, if that, can, if that can make it to Hebrews chapter 11, and obviously David sets a very high bar because he's an incredible man of faith, right, even with that baggage. Well, if he can be there, then Jephthah, with what we know of him, with this one mistake that turns into be another lesson of faith, mm. then I think he, can, he holds his weight in that, yeah. you know. But when you just read it, you think, well, who's Jephthah to be named among these men? So at first, when we were studying this, I thought, yeah, that's, how is, how is Jephthah in Hebrews 11? And then you dig in, you go, oh, well, because he's amazing, you know? So yeah. it's like, it makes sense. I just want to piggyback off of that. I mean, you can go, well, let me say this first before I, before I do this. Hebrews 11 isn't a list of perfect people. It, it, it'd be it's, a quick chapter. It's, yeah, it, uh -huh. it, it, they wouldn't be able to list any names, Yeah. right? God doesn't, even though man does, God doesn't judge us off of our worst moment. Mm. And I think you see that in every one of these heroes and heroines of faith as you go through Hebrews 11. You can go to the beginning of it and let's just start, let's start with Noah, verse 7. Noah is this man of faith. What do we know about Noah? He's also a drunkard at one point. He also got drunk. So he's an imperfect man. What do we know about Abraham? Abraham was promised that he would have a child and instead went to Hagar and tried to, to make it happen himself. Well, what do we know about Isaac? Well, Isaac lied. He said Rebekah wasn't uh, his wife. What do we know about Jacob? Don't get me started on Jacob. Hey, right? Yeah. Me, me and Jay have a vendetta against Jacob for some reason. <laughs> Just as you read the text of Jacob, he's this, this 
father who shows favoritism. He, he makes a lot, a lot of mistakes. What do we know about Moses? He was a coward. He was, he was disobedient. Murderer. He was a murderer. And you go through the text. What do we know about David? What do we know about uh, Samson? We haven't even talked about Samson, but there he is. What do we know about Samuel? He was a horrible father. And as, you know, what, what does verse 32 say? The time would fail me to talk about. Well, the time would fail us to talk about all the other people and all their other mistakes. But the point is, Hebrews 11 isn't a list of, of God's perfect. It's a list of people God made perfect through their faith. It's, 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 it's a living proof that, that God doesn't judge us. We will not be remembered by our worst <coughs> moment, by our lowest point in life. If we are God's children and we let faith rule our life, we let faith dictate our decisions, and we ultimately are men and women of faith, what will be remembered is what we see in Hebrews 11. Our triumphs. Our greatest moments. The moments that we stood for God. You don't have any type of caveat in Hebrews 11. But all these people were awful. It's called the Faith Hall of Fame. It's called the Hall of Fame of Faith because that's how God views them. So faithful men and women that they stand as a tribute for all of time because of their faith they displayed. Even though they had incredibly low moments, they can still be called heroes and heroines of faith. I think there's something very powerful for us to think about in our lives because we often think about our very lowest point and we think of ourselves in that light we think of ourselves the way God sees us. And that's faithful or unfaithful. Kyle, you got anything? Yeah, I think one thing we haven't said yet in regards to Jephthah is that this vow he made, the reason we call it rash or the, or the reason we, we term it uh, as if it was not smart is because it forced him to violate Mosaic law. That's something we haven't really talked about yet. But if you go to Deuteronomy chapter 12 and verse 31, there's a statement God makes there where he refers to sacrificing children to the other deities of Canaan as an abomination, as something he hates. And in the text, he says, you will not worship me like they are worshipped. The, the implication of that text is, you don't sacrifice children. That's a no-no. That's wrong. And so Jephthah has made a vow that he's going to uphold that is going to force him to violate God's law. That's why we even have this question of why should Jephthah be worthy of induction into the, hall, the Faith Hall of Fame? But as we talked about already, Jephthah has been so focused on giving God the credit for victories, focused on uh, God's going to be the one who's involved in this. It's his, his um, victory, not mine. That mentality of faith that he has. The other thing you need to know is there is a sense in which Jephthah shows faith by keeping his word, by fulfilling his vow, because Numbers chapter 30 and verse 2 says, If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Jephthah did that. 
He was in a catch-22 because he didn't think through his vow. He didn't put this clause in there that he should have. But he kept his word because God's word told him to keep his word. There, are, there, there is ignorance in what he did, but there is also a degree of obedience and faith in everything he did too. And so that's why he, he deserves to be in the Faith Hall of Fame as well. As we bring this to a close tonight, um, what's, what's, what's the greatest message that we can learn uh, from the life of Jephthah? What do we learn about God? What can we apply from the life of Jephthah to our lives tonight here as members of the Beaufort Church of Christ? How do we make this real for us tonight? I think my two things, um, I'll try to say this quick, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, starting verse 26, Paul writes, For consider your calling, brethren, that there, may, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world <clears throat> to shame things which are strong. And the base things of the world that are despised, God has chosen the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may uh, boast before God. The thing I learned about God from this passage, and this is just, I mean, preached from Genesis to Revelation, right? Is that what amazing God, what, what amazing things God can do through imperfect people. God chooses a man that was born on the wrong side of the tracks. This isn't from East Israel. Nothing good happens in East Israel. All the cool stuff is in West. He's born on the wrong side of the tracks. Illegitimate child, dysfunctional family, kicked out, running with a gr- bad crowd. This would be the. I mean, this is that. He, if he was in our generation today, he would he, he would deserve to be put in a boys' home. And this is a kid that has everything going against him, but has risen through out of it and come out with a name that then, when people are in need, they go to him, right? And yet, through all that, God says, "Okay, th- that's the person, the guy that has everything going on wrong for him and go- going on wrong with him, perhaps at that point in his life. That's the man that I want to lead." And that's the man I'm going to pour my spirit out. That doesn't happen very often, right? I'm going to pour out my spirit on this man. And we're going to get things done through him. So what I learned about God about that is I'm so grateful he does that. Because he, if he didn't take that mode, if he didn't choose the weak, if he didn't choose the imperfect, if he didn't choose the flawed, then I'd have no business being here. You know what I'm saying? And so it's just another just degree of gratitude, another story that goes, thank goodness God operates this, this way because I'm born on the wrong side. I, I, I'm messed up. I have flaws, right? That God has deemed me worthy as he has deemed all of us worthy that I'm, I'm worth dying for and I'm worth living, you know, living for. And so uh, I'm, that's what I learned about God. And then the biggest takeaway I take from this passage is, man, my, vow mat- my, my va- vows matter. When I make a vow to God, that matters. That promise I made to him when I came out of those waters, I mean, that's nothing I take trivial. That's, that's a vow that's been signed. That's a, that's a vow that's been completed in his eyes. And that's one that I have no business treating as something I can turn on and turn off. I can turn on and turn off. And so if that's the case, if God treats it that way, that's a great passage, a great point you brought up, Kyle. And if Jephthah treats it that way, then my vow to God, nothing else matters. That's the words I have to uphold. Your, your big takeaway is the same one I have. Uh, and I want to I read Matthew chapter 5, verse 33 through 37, because Jesus spoke to this. 
That's Matthew chapter 5, verse 33 through 37 in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, Again you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. I think the point Jesus is making there is that do what you say you're going to do. Let your speech be honest and true and never questioned. And I think that I think the application for us is to just be smart with the things we say. Don't be rash with the things you say. Don't don't just spew out things, but think it through before you say it. Think it through before you post it. That might be an even more important message nowadays with social media. Let your yes be yes and your no be no, because anything else, he said, comes from evil. So what, what, are, what is your speech producing and where is it coming from? Consider that. And if I could just quickly add something to mine, and then I'll turn it over for you to finish it out, Ben. The beauty of verse tw- the fact that 29 comes before verse 30. Look at what happened to 29. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. Now verse 30. Jephthah makes a vow. God knew exactly what this outcome was going to be. God does not see this story as linear. Okay, I'm going to pour my spirit out on him. I'm going to, I'm going to help him. Oh, he made a vow. That's great. Okay, I'm going to help him win this war. Oh, the vow didn't work out. No, he, before Jephthah was born, God knows where that vow is heading. God knows that this is a blatant mistake. Yet he still decides to work good things through him. And so I think that's a whole other lesson in us today that even when we've made a mistake, even when a vow breaks, even when things go wrong, even when, when, things, when life does not work out right, God poured the Spirit out way before then and God's still going to be able to work through you and work through, with you for the rest of time. Just because you've had a setback, just because David did have the, the mistake he made, just because Jephthah made the vow, doesn't mean that the Spirit of the Lord left Jephthah. This man that made a blatant terrible mistake God still says you're worthy to win this battle so when you when you make a mistake the battle's not done yet those are great thoughts when I I think um, Hebrews 11 means something to all of us I think growing up I don't know how many lessons I've heard about Hebrews 11 I don't know how many uh, things that we hear about Hebrews Hebrews 11 right and I think the fact that Jephthah made it is just amazing. And the same could be said about Samson. We're going to get to Samson, I guess, later in this uh, study. But Jephthah making it to Hebrews 11. You know, I look at Hebrews 11, and we all, I think, grow up thinking about Hebrews 11. But we couldn't touch the hem of the garment <clears throat> of these heroes of faith, right? Because we, we make them into these supermen that are not on our plateau. They're not on our same plane. We are not playing the same game that these people are. They are just up there, and I'm way down here. I think we have totally misunderstood the point of Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 is not to point the glory towards David and Abraham. It's to point the glory of what faith means. 
faith is the substance of things hoped for, evidence of things not seen. Hebrews 11, 1. Hebrews 11, 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please them. When we look at these men and women of faith in Hebrews 11, every one of them believed in God in times that it didn't make sense to. It makes no sense for Jacob to go through what he went through. Go through with it anyway. It makes no sense for David to have to lose his son that he had uh, in that sin with Bathsheba. It makes no sense for Moses to go through the wilderness for 40 years and never get to touch the promise. But every example you go through, faith, Faith was the substance of their life. And so tonight, as we look at ourselves and we think about ourselves, look at our lives, just realize it doesn't matter what your lowest point is. It doesn't matter if you are in your lowest point right now tonight, spiritually. If you will have faith, God won't ever remember that. God promises that not only will He forgive our sins, but that He will remember them no more. When we look at the life of Jephthah, it's as if in the time of the New Testament, no one remembered the rash lowest point. Instead, everyone remembered the man of faith that Jephthah was. And that could be every one of us in this room tonight. If we will allow our past not to dictate our today. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our dear most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the day that you blessed us with, for this period of study, looking at the book of Judges and continuing to glean so many messages from your word that apply to our lives, apply to our hearts. Uh, thank you so much for the life of Jephthah, uh, this, this imperfect man who was also a great leader of your people. We pray that we can look at his life and apply it to ours. That we can look uh, tonight at our hearts and our the state that we're in tonight. If it's if it's the highest spiritually we've ever been, or, or the absolute lowest spiritually we've ever been, we pray that our faith can sustain us. We pray that our words that we utter out of our mouths might be true faithful and thought, seasoned with grace, seasoned with salt. Pray that we will be people who try every single day to learn how to tame the tongue so that we can be better followers of you. Lord, thank you again for this study of Jephthah. Pray that it will usher us into the next week as we try to be faithful brothers and sisters, faithful children of yours. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.